Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good God, it's positively hammering down outside. Lightning, thunder, the whole shebang, my good man. What say you pour me a beer? One cold enough for the lips, but warming for the heart. How about it, barkeep? Sir, how did you find this place? Well, I mean, my car's just out the back. In a tiny spot of trouble, of course, as you suspect in this weather. Can't see a thing. Do, do I know you? Keeper will do. Just uh, the keeper. Keeper? Okay, sure. I'm not fuss about your ways around here. Now, keeper, the beer, my good man. We don't have beer here, but I have a tea with your name on it. Tea? Tea? Seriously, tea? I mean, oh, well, it's not like I'll be here all night. There, tea, Keeper, tea it is. Good. Now sit down and share you a story that will linger, much like the tea I'll be brewing, Earl Grey. Earl Grey? That's unusually fancy, if I do say so myself. And a beverage with a show. What kind of tavern is this? One that you'll be sure to remember. Get comfy. Dead Man's Hand Recently I learned that Count Dratok died. The cause of death was suicide. The way he went out was fairly fitting for the man. In death, as he was in life, strange, shocking, and most definitely, unintentionally attention-grabbing. Count Dratok is the nickname of Oscar Nyholm. He produced and sold music under that name. He always said he derived the name from the old legends about vampires that it felt powerful and right to him. He had a small following of people who were genuinely interested in his stuff. Oscar used to be a friend of mine. We grew up together. He used to be my friend, until he tried killing me. As strange as it may sound, I can understand why he did what he did, especially knowing what I know now. Oscar wasn't right in the head. He was a cold individual to those who couldn't break past his walls. He was a strange and dark man. Many would say he found no joy in life and was depressed. I don't know whether he had suffered from depression, but he found some pleasures in his life for sure. He would come off as a person who does not understand and is incapable of humour. However, I'd say that he had a sense of humour. His humour was just very dark, dry and subtle. He was a peculiar man, but for fifteen years I thought he was just a little strange, maybe even a genius. He was insightful and certainly talented, just misunderstood. His strange personality manifested itself after he nearly died in a skating accident. He suffered a serious fall, rupturing a few internal organs as a kid, and ended clinically dead for a couple of minutes. After that, something went wrong. Something probably broke in his head because his brain 
didn't get enough oxygen. After that accident, Oscar became increasingly isolationist, cold, broody, and somewhat obsessed with death, specifically corpses. Not in the sense that he wanted to do anything with actual corpses, no dead bodies repulsed and appalled him. He displayed his obsession with corpses in his frequent verbiage, relating to the said word. He became extremely nihilistic, and would equate people to rotting corpses crawling through their lives. Oscar would frequently use many such euphemisms. The Count frequently said he saw most people as corpses strolling about, wasting away. He could tell you who was a corpse and who was not. It was completely arbitrary and senseless to anyone besides him. For the longest time, I thought it was just the colourful language of a brooding young man. I guess it was more literal in his choice of words. One of his peculiarities was telling everyone who knew him that there was ice in his veins. He'd also complain he's cold. This wouldn't stop until his nagging forced someone to touch him and say he's warm or something. I always assumed it was part of his humour. Another one of his shticks was saying he can't feel his pulse. Nobody bothered checking this one, though. This frequently resulted in him ranting for hours about how he's a machine or a miracle of the devil or some other silly thing. It was entirely harmless, like I said. So we, his few friends, just followed along with his oddities. Other than being a weird dude, he was a pretty stand-up guy. Oscar held a job at a local music shop. He was almost entirely normal around strangers. And you couldn't tell he had a thing for covering himself in dirt and proclaiming to be a soldier in the army of the walking dead. He estranged himself from his family, but he loved the freedom of it all, I guess. All of that started changing when we met Thorstein Rood, the outlaw, known so locally for being a man who lived in his car because he could. He was another type of strange, something you'd call a corporate psychopath. He couldn't physically hurt a fly, but he was an asshole and was dying to make money. The problem with this guy was that he was an absolute moron. He couldn't do anything right. I remember in the early 90s, he rented a shop, turned it into an entertainment place. He used part of the shop as a small-scale theatre and used the rest to sell music records and move cassettes. The shop had to be closed down in a short time because the idiot couldn't manage finances. Oscar knew this guy was no good from the get-go. He called him a corpse right away. I remember he said he was riddled with maggots sprouting from an empty eye socket in a creepy low pitch. I remember to this day the visual of him placing a hand over his eye and wiggling his fingers while rolling his eyes. Somehow Rude convinced the Count they should work together on the Count's music. I don't know how or why. The two never seemed to go a single day without arguing. At some point, Rude thought it was a good idea to promote Count Dratok as his own project. Oscar found out and nearly lost his shit. He was turning red and blue with rage. His eyes got that creepy, unnerving stare. The stare of a lunatic. It was a very obvious stare. Looking at the distant, unfocused yet piercing... It sent chills down my spine when he chucked his beer bottle to the floor and then grabbed a piece of broken glass, swearing he'd kill Rude. To this day, 
I have no clue about how Rude got himself in the newspaper. He was worthless. A pathetic scum. Anyway, he mentioned Oscar as the weird dude who inspired his music. Someone, somewhere, contacted Oscar, who then buried the project as deep as he could in the eyes of the public out of spite. He didn't care about the money or being famous. It was a hobby for him. He used to hand out records with his music to his closest friends, never accepting money for them. So he sold himself as this absolute maniac who performs satanic rituals in the woods and practices demonic necromancy and all this other silly shit. Whoever was in charge of that interview was an idiot who took him too seriously, and that caused a local outrage. The project went to shit, and as a result, Outlaw made death threats towards Oscar. Over the fucking phone. He never bothered showing his face again in town. That was the end of that. Granted, Oscar got himself in trouble for his behavior in the interview. The circumstances forced him to admit that the whole thing was nothing more than a promotional joke for his music project. Soon enough, life returned to normal. As normal as my life could be when one of my closest friends was Oscar, the man who could show up at my apartment at 4am to talk to me about his doomed nihilism, as he called it. I came home one night from work, and I remember him sitting on the steps at our apartment complex. He was just sitting there, giggling to himself, nothing unusual for him. I remember his head was facing the floor with his long, blonde hair covering his face. I placed my hand on his back and greeted him as King of the Beggars, Dratok. He just turned his head upwards and giggled, staring at me with that insane look on his face again. His eyes were so fucking weird. Something about this whole situation made my skin crawl. I remember how time could have slowed down as we looked at each other, and he just stared at the street behind me while directly looking into my eyes. My heart rose to my throat, and I clearly remember it pounding in my ears. I just bolted past him and started climbing toward my apartment. Something about him felt wrong, entirely wrong. This wasn't the usual weirdness of Oscar Nyholm. This was something completely different. I just remember the stairwell being completely dark and silent. I am consumed by thoughts about the strange man sitting below, and I feel this gut-twisting sharp pain pulsating next to my collarbone. My right arm went numb, and the pain reverberated through my entire body, shooting little arrows of agony across my shoulder and into my chest. I reached for my hurting shoulder, and I felt a chilly hand beneath mine. At that moment, my head went blank. Every thought flew out of the window. The primal part of my psyche took over, and I screamed. Only then I noticed an elongated substance protruding from the base of my neck and something warm flowing under my shirt. He giggled, and my heart sank. Oscar Nyholm, Count Dratok. I heard him giggling behind my back. I turned around, and I saw his hand grasping my shirt. The pain was still bombarding my brain, and the adrenaline was overriding my judgment. I saw his fist flying towards me. Everything turned dark for a quarter of a moment, and my jaw felt sore. The blow refocused my mind. I saw Oscar attempting to punch me again. That sick stare in his eyes. 
a determined scowl on his mouth. Barely evading his punch, I pushed him with my bad hand. He stumbled a couple of steps back. My whole body was burning with pain, and I resorted to headbutting my assailant as hard as I could. He recoiled backward, nearly falling down the stairs, but was able to grasp the rail, not even thinking I kicked him as hard as I could in the chest, sending him down the flight of stairs with sickening thumps. Those few moments felt like an hour. I didn't even think about what had just happened. I ran up the stairs to my apartment, locking the door behind me. My body was hurting. My head was ringing. I was shaking and sick. The adrenaline was making me tremble, and I felt my stomach knotting. I ran to the bathroom to throw up. Only after I had thrown up, I noticed the screwdriver still lodged in the base of my neck. The adrenaline rush resumed. My mind went ballistic with all sorts of insane thoughts. I didn't feel the pain at all. I didn't risk pulling out the screwdriver. I called the police and forced myself to be coherent enough to explain to them what happened. Only after that, I remembered I might have crippled Oscar. So many thoughts and emotions swirled in my mind at that moment, ranging from anger to guilt. Even then, when I did not know why he did what he did, I didn't want him to die or be a cripple. It was so chaotic in my mind. When the cops and medics arrived, I was kneeling over the toilet, vomiting my guts out. They questioned me, and I ended up in hospital. The stabbing caused permanent nerve damage to my right arm. I was lucky to be alive. As the screwdriver didn't hit any important blood vessels, I couldn't sleep right for a few months. A cocktail of pain and the nightmares riddled with Dratok's demonic face haunted me in the dark. Speaking of Oscar, he wasn't seriously hurt in his fall. The authorities found out six days later that he was hiding in the forest, covered in blood and dirt, groaning and moaning while he crawled all over the ground. After searching his apartment, the authorities had found the remains of Thorstein Ruud. His corpse was the nastiest thing I've ever ever seen. Stab wounds and lacerations all over. Oscar destroyed his face. It was completely unrecognizable. He left Rud a pile of rotten meat and broken bones. Oscar Nyholm would serve ten years in prison, initially sentenced to fifteen. They had let him out early, thanks to his exemplary behavior behind the bars. Of course, he apologized for what he did to me. We remained on speaking terms. He claimed in court that his murder of Rudd resulted from a drunken dispute that had turned violent. He blamed the influence of what he called bad alcohol on the assault on me as well. I guess he convinced the judge enough to avoid life in prison with his display of remorse. I doubted it was sincere at first, but now I think he was honestly regretting his actions. He would later tell me he did what he did because he was curious to find out what it felt like to kill a person. A sick thought experiment he devised for himself. Turns out, he enjoyed the experience I provided and decided it was worth it to kill Rood, just to feel that thrill again and get back at the asshole. That was also the first time he admitted something wasn't right in his head. He repeatedly apologized for not being able to control his urge and that I wasn't an intended target, just a casualty of lost control. It didn't help him. I never allowed him to get close again. The guy creeped me out more often than not after that incident. Society forgave him and embraced him. He improved his overall behavior with people, 
and also spent most of his time in prison producing some strange yet beautiful music. Once out of prison, he started volunteering at the psychiatric center, perhaps to help himself. Sadly, it didn't pan out as he might have intended. Not too long ago, I scrolled through my emails. In a sea of spam and useless messages, I found an email from Oscar. He emailed the same message to all his acquaintances. Oscar had never emailed me before. He'd call or text me. This was a first-time thing, so it piqued my curiosity. I opened the email, and there was a video. The title was Project O, Strange and Artistic. How typical of Count Dratok, I thought. Opening the video, I expected something either fucked up or some trippy music video. I didn't expect to see the face of despair staring at me. Oscar sat in front of his camera, pale and exhausted, completely drained of all life. He looked like a patient of oncology. A completely hollow husk made of skin and bone parodying the man he once was. He was never a big man, but he was not as skinny as he'd become in this video. Something felt off. A feeling that would only get worse when he started speaking. He spoke about corpses and pain and suffering and hell and heaven, and the longer he spoke, the sicker I felt. I remember him admitting he did what he did because he saw most people as walking, decaying lumps of flesh, forever locked in their infernal agony, untold suffering etched into their decomposing expressions. He spoke about how he couldn't look at the mirror because a corpse was staring back at him about realizing that this world is hell in the form of a nightmare we're all stuck in, about how he figured out that the only way to wake up is to die. He said he knew his time had come, that he had turned to decaying monstrosity, drowning in his own unimaginable pain, of how his blood froze in his veins and his heart petrified and turned into a stone, about how he would wake up to the real world, after he blows his brains out. I just sat there, sickened and confused by this whole spiel of his. He apologized for the hurt he had caused throughout the years and urged no one to mourn for him, saying he will be gone to a better place by the time they found his false remains. I felt the temperature drop in my room as I watched the video. Everything slowed down and turned kind of dim for the duration of the viewing. I found it hard to breathe as if something was forcing cold and heavy air into my lungs, making it hard to inhale properly. I had to re-watch the video a few times because of how surreal it all seemed. Every time I replayed the thing, every single time I re-watched the video, I could feel the cold, hateful touch under my skin. The dead man's hand was crawling up my chest and clutched my heart, attempting to crush it within its grip. I spent more than an hour re-watching that video, until I could no longer watch it, only stopping when the urge to vomit surfaced. I only stopped when it all started making sense to me. Oscar Nyholm was a deeply disturbed man. He must have convinced himself everyone around him was an anguished soul trapped inside a rotten carcass, deprived of rest because he perceived himself to be dead. He probably saw himself as the thing he claimed to view everyone else as, a tortured soul stuck in an ever-decaying body that is bereft of rest. I still re-watch the video sometimes, even though it all makes sense. 
just to see if the morbid sensation will return, and it always does. I still feel the dread man's hand reach for my heart. It's like something anchors Oscar's lonely spirit to that video file and is still incapable of peaceful rest. Oscar Nyholm had committed suicide age 41. Count Dratok blew his brains out with the shotgun just as he promised. May he live forever in the memories of those who knew him. This is the story of Count Dratok, the strange man who once tried to kill him. He believed me to be a living corpse trapped in eternal agony, unable to escape its own torment. He thought killing me would save me. May his memory live in the subconsciousness of all as he does in my nightmares. Written by Wilson D. Keller Dear Theodore Dear Theodore, I am the monster hiding under your bed. Personally, I think monster is a bit of a harsh word, but that's what you call me, so that's what I choose to go by. To make it clear, though, I go by many names beyond you. Night Stalker is one, the Shadow Man is another. I think I also may have accidentally started a few legends without meaning to. Would you believe that Bigfoot may have just been me taking a stroll through the woods? Truly, depending on who sees me, any human can imagine something different. So far, I like your imagination the best. As I'm writing this, you're six years old. For all six, I've been under your bed. I followed you from the NICU and listened to your crying all the way home from hospital. I admit that the crib was harder to squeeze myself under, but I managed. I'm grateful you've since upgraded to a big boy bed. It's a lot easier on my back. As you've grown, you leave the house more and more. I'd forgotten that children go to school so young until I heard you return, excitedly rambling to your ignorant parents about the things you'd learned. Mrs. Thomas sounds nice, from what you say. I approve of her. For now. Anyone can sound nice coming from you, though, because you tend to see the best in people. It's a quality that gives me hope. This world needs more people with infinite optimism like yours, and you can quote the big scary night monster on that. In fact, you even try to find good things in me. When the moon casts a hideous mix of shadows and light into your room, and the fear of my presence makes you tremble. I hear you whisper to me, I'm scared. Are you scared, too? It's clear that you don't know who you're talking to. To you, I am nothing but a nameless creature, with no aim or purpose, just an undetermined maliciousness. You don't even seem to know what I would hypothetically do to you, should you fall asleep while I'm around. In the daytime, you think you're safe from me. Do you think shadows simply disappear, little one? If I wanted to hurt you, I would. You drew me once, when you were four. The crumpled paper ended up under the bed with me. 
You have never truly seen me, and your art skills were undeveloped, to say the least. So, of course, there were a few inconsistencies. Your illustration depicted a haphazard grey scribble, with pointed teeth and horns, and too many claws to count, almost like a sickly demonic porcupine. I couldn't help but be amused when I saw it. I won't say you were completely wrong. I suppose I mention all this because I know that you know nothing about me. But I know so, so much about you. In fact, I like to think that I know you better than you know yourself. I know that you don't like vegetables, but will eat any fruit placed in front of you. I know that your favorite cereal is Reese's Puffs, even though you rarely get to eat them. I know that you only know one curse word, but you're afraid to say it out loud. I know that you want to be a firefighter, but two months ago you wanted to be a construction worker, and you will end up being neither. I know the names of all your friends, and which ones will turn out to betray you in the future. I know the names of your first and second girlfriends, and your first and only boyfriend. I know you love your parents, even though they hurt you. I know the age at which you'll die. I also know how to stop it. Though I do know a lot of things, I'm not sure when this letter will reach you. In fact, I'm not sure you will ever read it. I wish I could say that I was positive you'd understand why I'm about to do what I plan to do, and that you'd support my decision when you grow older. But the truth is, I don't know if you ever will. The only thing I'm 100% clear on is that I won't regret doing what I'll do to them. They deserve the punishment they'll receive. Because at night, when the tree branches look like giant claws, at your window and the darkness seems to be moving in closer, I know it's not me you're truly afraid of. Deep inside, in a place your mind cannot yet access. You're afraid of your parents. I'm scared. Are you scared, too? You ask the question not over the sound of me, but over them. They fight and spat like wild animals. A never-ending cyclone of neglect and anger. You have no idea how they act when you're gone, flourishing in the temporary safety that a classroom brings you. You cannot fathom the amount of pain they will bring you when they realize you've become too old to cuddle and just old enough to treat you like they treat each other. You would be so good without them. Much better off, I assure you. It'll hurt for a while, but you're still young. The pain will fade, and then you'll be free. Free from their chaos and self-destruction and abuse. You'll be able to live the life you want with no one to hold you back. 
One day, if you read this, you'll understand why I took them away from you. And I hope, then, that you'll thank me. I hope the nightmares of your parents' blood will slowly fade into a background hum, replaced by that endless optimism I know you hold so close. And when that day comes, I hope you realize that I care for you more than they ever did. Eternally yours, the monster still under your bed. When will the laughing stop? I think the answer is 23 and a third. Six full seconds pass before the sound of my own voice echoes in my ears. I count each one, if only to confirm that the delay isn't a figment of my subconsciousness. Craning my neck, I look around, scanning the faces of my colleagues. Smiles, sneers... Lips curled behind jagged teeth, hungry eyes assault me from every angle, and I know it's only a matter of time. Eight, nine, ten. With clockwork precision, it begins. The whispering comes first, as they always do. It's their way of deceiving me, pretending they haven't heard, but both they and I know what's to follow. From the rear, a stifled snicker emerges, then a soft chuckle from the right. And with that, the signal is given. Laughter births forth from the class-like magma, searing and vicious. Gnarled fingers arch towards my direction, swaying as chests heave with fervent glee. Callous gazes penetrate me between bouts of ardent tears. As the timer reaches fourteen, the cacophony of torment reaches its maximum, and for a moment my hands instinctively swing upward to shield my head. Then, slowly but surely, the howling, disperses, their own echoes finally settling amongst the floorboards. Sorry, but I'm afraid the correct answer is N minus eight, says Mr. B. It's okay, you'll get it next time. The math teacher's response is always the same. You'll get it next time. It's not a consolation, but a dismissal. Wishful thinking at best. Besides, it's not the first question I've gotten wrong, and it most certainly won't be the last. Even as my aggressors recede, the air is still thick with rancorous fog, and it takes all my strength to stop myself from suffocating. I shrink back into my seat and curse myself, forever taking the chance. After class, Mr. B approaches me, as he's done several times before. Are you all right? He answers, taking the seat to my left. I take a moment to recover before responding. Yes, I lie. I know learning these topics is harder for you than for most, he asserts. But just because you don't get as many questions right as your peers, it doesn't mean you are any less talented than them. It's an excuse I've heard countless times before, and it means even less coming from someone like him, who pretends to care. The important thing is not to let them get to you. I watch his mouth contort as he speaks. Though its shape is comparatively civil, I sense a slight smirk buried deep within its grooves, waiting for me to look away so it can break free. Thank you. With a dismissing nod, I leave, ears still ringing. The bus ride home is mercifully quiet. Even here, though, I sense somewhere bitter voices 
reigned behind eager lips. Are they biding time, saving their breath for a mounted assault? Perhaps it's a simple taunt or a warning. I'll never know for sure. They know it makes no difference. As I step out into the afternoon stillness, a cool reprieve washes over me. For a moment, I let my lungs fill with the elixir of silence, savouring each sweet breath as though it was my last. Indeed, as I enter my front door, it takes only 12 seconds for the floorboards to erupt in rapture. Your report card came in. I know what's coming. I hang my backpack on the back of my chair and sit legs crossed. It was math again, I know. I utter, I told you. I've been studying as much as I can. What good is studying if you never learn a thing from it? The fist slammed on the table, sending out a ripple of splinters. How do you think it feels having to hear that your child was the only one who answered a question wrong? I bend down, trying my best to shield my ears. The laughing hurts, but it's always the upbraiding that burns more. Do you know what they'll think of us? What they'll say about us? Tears from in my eyes, despite my best efforts to will them away. We'll be a laughing stock. I pry myself away from the table and race the echoing shrills to my room. Even though I track every footstep, it's becoming harder to tell who gets there first. On the ride to school, I'm greeted by the familiar chorus of giggles and grins. As I walk home from the drop-off, I feel the scornful gaze of drivers from their cars and pedestrians on the other side of the road. The laughing isn't always audible, but I can see it in how their cheeks stretch taut, how their eyelids skew like lips, how their fleshy tongues roll inside their mouths. I feel every bird cackle and every insect scream. Even the trees taunt me amidst their harsh whispers. I cover my ears for the long walk to the classroom and shrink down into my seat, avoiding Mr. B's gaze as I brace for the inevitable. 31. 32. I count each minute as it creeps by, allowing every deafening clock tick to drown out the dreaded question. Somehow, it never comes. Before I know it, class is over. There are no chuckles, no snickers or sneers. I'm left alone in the room with Mr. B. He approaches my desk. I didn't want to put too much pressure on you today. I scour his visage for signs of malice. The tears make it too blurry to tell. I tried to make today's lesson a little easier, if that helped. Is he trying to catch me off guard? Is he merely hiding it well? I don't know. I silently nod, turning to stare at the warped wood of my desk. He sighs. <sighs> I talked to your parents this morning. I freeze. Now, I try not to judge, but they sound like they've been pretty hard on you. Something's not right. That telltale trace of insincerity isn't there. Hey! He folds his arms. If you ever need someone to talk to, I'm here. Is... is this real? I've been dealing with endless acerbity for so long that I start to wonder what true silence sounds like. I look up. As my eyes dry, his face comes into focus. We can make this work out. A smile. A vast, twisted sneer. That speaks loud enough for the both of us. My hand grabs my pencil and brings it up with one swift motion. 
I let its weight guide my arm into a perfect, unbroken arc. As the instrument sinks through the side of his neck, time begins to move once more. One. His eyes widen. I extricate the blade, but my arm swings like a pendulum. I follow through. Two. The motion comes as naturally as a heartbeat. I let the momentum take over. Three. Four. Five. Through bleary eyes, I watch as Mr. B collapses to the ground. There's a deep, resonant gurgle as flesh gives way to ephemeral swill. But I can't rest, because as I take one last look at his face, a single, horrible image burns itself into my mind. That smile, that awful smile, still stretched wide and white and laughing, laughing, laughing. And once more, I'm left with a question to which I'll never know the answer. When will it stop? Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed your trio of tales today. Positively creepy-licious, with a focus on mental health in these three episodes. Your tales were as follows. Dear Theodore, written by Spirit Voices. Dead Man's Hands by Wilson D. Keller. And When Will the Laughing Stop? by Anonymous. My thanks to them for sharing their tales. Today's episode is brought to you by my Patreon supporters. People like you, listeners, that put some money aside to help the show try different things, support authors, and give back to the community, whilst also improving audio quality. My first supporter is Ode Knight T Titan, Megastar Maya, the queen of cats, and the ever-shining bright star. Thank you so, so much, Maya, for your contribution. Honestly, Every episode has your touch of support due to your tier, and I'm able to pay off subscriptions, add music, and not worry about the annual coverage to host a website or purchase equipment for the show. Your support in tandem with other lovely Patreons makes this show what it is today, a storytelling fun fest. Thank you so much, Maya. You're epic. My white tea warlord, Lezuka Bowzuka. Boom, Lezer. Just like your nickname today, you're blasting a hole in the enemy that is stagnation. Thanks to you, buddy, I've been able to work on purchasing some new images for pictures regarding the podcast, and you've been helping me cover any charges that I use that I pay for reaching out to different audiences. Thank you so much, Lezer, for being epic. And I'll be reaching out to you this weekend for a little hello from me to you. Thanks, mate, for being brilliant. And my second white tea warlord, because I'm lucky enough to have two, is Paige Kramer, the superstar gazer, shining just as bright as the stars that Paige gazes at. Paige, you helped me press the power button for this podcast, and thanks to your support, I finally figured out what pop filter to get, and we'll be grabbing it tonight so that I can get it in time to do some more hefty vocals. Thank you so much, Paige, and I'm very lucky to have your kind of support. Thanks again. And my amazing peeps that electrify this podcast cables, my L-Great enforcers, I'm lucky to have. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, Divided by Zero, and Leah Fassig. Supporters, all of you, never forget how important you are. You're not just a series of names that sit on my Patreon page or at the end of my YouTube videos. 
Every single one of you helps me make this podcast special. And I'm lucky to know that people like you support creators like me. Please never, ever forget how awesome you all are. Have a kick-ass Wednesday, folks, and I'll catch you Friday for something different. As always, mates, till next we meet.